This is Colby Fedor with K2 Radio News. Usually for this segment, we air an episode of Report to Wyoming, our news podcast. But for today, I wanted to share one of my all-time favorite Christmas stories. Christmas is a Sad Season for the Poor by John Cheever. It was originally published in The New Yorker in 1949. The story is both funny and sad at the same time. It explores the question of charity and its many faces. So without further ado, Christmas is a Sad Season for the Poor. The phrase came to Charlie an instant after the alarm clock had waked him and named him from an amorphous depression that had troubled him all the previous evening. The sky outside his window was black. He sat up in bed and pulled the light chain that hung in front of his nose. Christmas is a very sad day of the year, he thought. Of all the millions of people in New York, I'm practically the only one who has to get up in the cold black of 6 a.m. on Christmas Day in the morning. I'm practically the only one. He dressed, and when he went downstairs from the top floor of the rooming house in which he lived, the only sounds he heard were the coarse sounds of sleep. The only lights burning were lights that had been forgotten. Charlie ate some breakfast in an all-night lunch wagon and took an elevated train uptown. From 3rd Avenue, he walked over to Park. Park Avenue was dark. House after house, put into the shine of the streetlights, a wall of black windows. Millions and millions sleeping, and this general loss of consciousness generated an impression of abandonment, as if this were the fall of the city, the end of time. He opened the iron and glass doors of the apartment building where he had been working for six months as an elevator operator and went through the elegant lobby to a locker room at the back. He put on a striped vest with brass buttons, a false ascot, a pair of pants with a light blue stripe on the seam and a coat. The night elevator man was dozing on the little bench in the car. Charlie woke him. The night elevator man told him thickly that the day doorman had been taken sick and wouldn't be in that day. With the doorman sick, Charlie wouldn't have any relief for lunch, and a lot of people would expect him to whistle for cabs. Charlie had been on duty a few minutes when 14 rang, and Mrs. Hewing, who he happened to know, was kind of immoral. Mrs. Hewing hadn't been to bed yet, and she got into the elevator wearing a long dress under her fur coat. She was followed by her two funny-looking dogs. He took her down and watched her go out in the dark and take her dogs to the curb. She was outside for only a few minutes, and then she came in, and he took her up to 14 again. When she got off the elevator, she said, "'Merry Christmas, Charlie.' "'Well, it isn't much of a holiday for me, Mrs. Hewing,' he said." I think Christmas is a very sad season of the year. It isn't that people around here ain't generous. I mean, I get plenty of tips, but you see, I live alone in a furnished room and I don't have any family or anything, and Christmas isn't much of a holiday for me. I'm sorry, Charlie, Mrs. Hewing said. I don't have any family myself. It is kind of sad when you're alone, isn't it? She called her dogs and followed them into her apartment. He went down. It was quiet then, and Charlie lit a cigarette. The heating plant in the basement encompassed the building at that hour in a regular and profound vibration, and the sullen noises of arriving steam heat began to resound first in the lobby and then reverberate up through the sixteen stories. But this was a mechanical awakening, and it didn't lighten his loneliness or his petulance. The black air outside the glass doors had begun to turn blue, but the blue light seemed to have no source. It appeared in the middle of the air. It was a tearful light. And as it picked out the empty street and the long file of Christmas trees, he wanted to cry. Then a cab drove up, and the Walzers got out, drunk and dressed in evening clothes, and he took them up to their penthouse. The Walzers got him to brooding about the difference between his life and a furnished room and the lives of the people overhead. It was terrible. Then the early churchgoers began to ring, but there were only three of these that morning. A few more went off to church at eight o'clock, but the majority of the building remained unconscious, although the smell of bacon and coffee had begun to drift into the elevator shaft. At a little after nine, a nursemaid came down with a child. Both the nursemaid and the child had a deep tan, and had just returned, he knew, from Bermuda. He had never been to Bermuda. He, Charlie, was a prisoner, confined eight hours a day to a six-by-eight elevator cage. 
In one building or another, he had made his living as an elevator operator for 10 years. He estimated the average trip at about an eighth of a mile, and when he thought of the thousands of miles he had traveled, when he thought that he might have driven the car through the mists above the Caribbean and set it down on some coral beach in Bermuda, he held the narrowness of his travels against his passengers, as if it were not the nature of the elevator but the pressure of their lives that confined him, as if they had clipped his wings. He was thinking about this when the DePauls on nine rang, and they wished him a Merry Christmas. "'Well, it's nice of you to think of me,' he said as they descended. "'But it isn't much of a holiday for me. "'Christmas is a sad season when you're poor. "'I live alone in a furnished room. "'I don't have any family.' "'Who do you have dinner with, Charlie?' Mrs. DePaul asked. "'I don't have any Christmas dinner,' Charlie said. "'I just get a sandwich.' "'Oh, Charlie!' Mrs. DePaul was a stout woman with an impulsive heart, "'and Charlie's plaint struck at her holiday mood as if she'd been caught in a cloudburst. "'I do wish we could share our Christmas dinner with you, you know,' she said. "'I come from Vermont, you know, and... When I was a child, you know, we always used to have a great many people at our table. The mailman, you know, and the school teacher, and just anybody who didn't have any family of their own, you know, and I wish we could share our dinner with you the way we used to, you know, and I don't see any reason why we can't. We can't have you at the table, you know, because you couldn't leave the elevator, could you? But just as soon as Mr. DePaul has carved the goose, I'll give you a ring and I'll arrange a tray for you, you know, and I want you to come up and at least share our Christmas dinner. Charlie thanked them and their generosity surprised him, but he wondered if, with the arrival of friends and relatives, they wouldn't forget their offer. Then old Mrs. Gadshill rang, and when she wished him a Merry Christmas, he hung his head. It isn't much of a holiday for me, Mrs. Gadshill. Christmas is a sad season if you're poor. You see, I don't have any family. I live alone in a furnished room. I don't have any family either, Charlie, Mrs. Gadshill said. She spoke with a pointed lack of petulance, but her grace was forced. That is, I don't have any children with me today. I have three children and seven grandchildren, but none of them can see their way to coming east for Christmas with me. Of course, I understand their problems. I know that it's difficult to travel with children during the holidays, although I always seemed to manage it when I was their age. But people feel differently, and we mustn't condemn them for the things we can't understand. But I know how you feel, Charlie. I haven't any family either. I'm just as lonely as you. Mrs. Gadshill's speech didn't move him. Maybe she was lonely, but she had a ten-room apartment and three servants, and bucks and bucks and diamonds and diamonds, and there was plenty of poor kids in the slums who would be happy at a chance at the food her cook threw away. Then he thought about poor kids. He sat down on a chair in the lobby, and he thought about them. They got the worst of it. Beginning in the fall, there was all this excitement about Christmas and how it was a day for them. After Thanksgiving, they couldn't miss it. It was fixed so they couldn't miss it. The wreaths and decorations everywhere, and bells ringing, and trees in the park, and Santa Clauses on every corner, and pictures in the magazines and newspapers on every wall and window in the city, telling them if they were good, they would get what they wanted. Even if they couldn't read, they couldn't miss it. They couldn't miss it if they were blind. It got into the air the poor kids inhaled. Every time they took a walk, they'd see all the expensive toys in the store windows. They'd write letters to Santa Claus, and their mothers and fathers would promise to mail them. And after the kids had gone to sleep, they'd burn the letters in the stove. And when it came to Christmas morning, how could you explain it? How could you tell them that Santa only visited the rich? They didn't know about the good. How could you face them when all you had to give them was a balloon or a lollipop? On the way home from work a few nights earlier, Charlie had seen a woman and a little girl going down 59th Street. The little girl was crying. He guessed she was crying. He knew she was crying because she'd seen all the things in the toy store windows and couldn't understand why none of them were for her. Her mother did housework, he guessed, or maybe was a waitress, and he saw them going back to a room like his, with green walls and no heat, on Christmas Eve to eat a can of soup. And he saw the little girl hang her ragged stocking and fall asleep, and he saw the mother looking through her purse for something to put into the stocking. This reverie was interrupted by a bell at eleven. He went up, and Mr. and Mrs. Fuller were waiting. When they wished him a Merry Christmas, he said, 
Well, it isn't much of a holiday for me, Mrs. Fuller. Christmas is a sad season when you're poor. Do you have any children, Charlie? Mrs. Fuller asked. Four living, he said, two in the grave. The majesty of his lie overwhelmed him. Mrs. Leary's a cripple, he added. Oh, how sad, Charlie, Mrs. Fuller said. She started out of the elevator when it reached the lobby, and then she turned. I want to give your children some presents, Charlie, she said. Mr. Fuller and I are going to pay a call now, but when we come back, I want to give you some things for your children. He thanked her. Then the bell rang on four, and he went up to get the Westons. It isn't much of a holiday for me, he told them when they wished him a Merry Christmas. Christmas is a sad season when you're poor. You see, I live alone in a furnished room. Poor Charlie, Mrs. Weston said. I know just how you feel. During the war, when Mr. Weston was away, I was all alone at Christmas. I didn't have any Christmas dinner or a tree or anything. I just scrambled myself some eggs and I sat there and cried. Mr. Weston, who had gone to the lobby, called impatiently to his wife. I know just how you feel, Charlie, Mrs. Weston said. By noon, the climate in the elevator shaft had changed from bacon and coffee to poultry and game, and the house, like an enormous and complex homestead, was absorbed in the preparations for a domestic feast. The children and their nursemaids had all returned from the park. Grandmothers and aunties were arriving in limousines. Most of the people who came through the lobby were carrying packages wrapped in colored paper and were wearing their best furs and new clothes. Charlie continued to complain to most of the tenants when they wished him a Merry Christmas, changing his story from the lonely bachelor to the poor father and back again. As his mood changed, but his outpouring of melancholy and the sympathy it aroused didn't make him feel any better. At half-past one, nine rang, and when he went up, Mr. DePaul was standing in the door of their apartment holding a cocktail shaker and a glass. "'Here's a little Christmas cheer, Charlie,' he said, and he poured Charlie a drink. Then a maid appeared with a tray of covered dishes, and Mrs. DePaul came out of the living room. "'Merry Christmas, Charlie,' she said. "'I had Mr. DePaul carve the goose early so that you could have some, you know.' I didn't want to put the dessert on the tray because I was afraid it would melt, you know, so when we have our dessert, we'll call you. And what is Christmas without presents, Mr. DePaul said, and he brought a large flat box from the hall and laid it on top of the covered dishes. You people make it seem like a real Christmas to me, Charlie said. Tears started into his eyes. Thank you, thank you. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, they called, and they watched him carry his dinner and his presents into the elevator. He took the tray and the box into the locker room when he got down. On the tray there was a soup, some kind of creamed fish, and a serving of goose. The bell rang again, but before he answered it, he tore open the DePaul's box and saw that it held a dressing gown. Their generosity and their cocktail had begun to work on his brain, and he went jubilantly up to twelve. Mrs. Gadshill's maid was standing in the door of the tray, and Mrs. Gadshill stood behind her. "'Merry Christmas, Charlie,' she said. He thanked her, and tears came into his eyes again. On the way down, he drank off the glass of sherry on Mrs. Gadshill's tray." Mrs. Gadchill's contributions was a mixed grill. He ate the lamb chops with his fingers. The bell was ringing again, and he wiped his face with a paper towel, and he went up to eleven. "'Merry Christmas, Charlie,' Mrs. Fuller said. She was standing in the door with her arms full of packages wrapped in silver paper, just like a picture in an advertisement, and Mr. Fuller was beside her with an arm around her, and they both looked as if they were going to cry. "'Here are some things I want you to take home to your children,' Mrs. Fuller said. "'And here's something for Mrs. Leary and something for you. "'And if you want to take these things out to the elevator, we'll have dinner for you in a minute.' "'He carried the things into the elevator and came back for the tray. "'Merry Christmas, Charlie,' both of the Fullers called after him as he closed the door. "'He took their dinner and their presents into the locker room and tore open the box that was marked for him. "'There was an alligator wallet in it, with Mr. Fuller's initials in the corner.' Their dinner was also goose, and he ate a piece of the meat with his fingers and was washing it down with a cocktail when the bell rang. He went up again. This time it was the Westons. Merry Christmas, Charlie, they said, and they gave him a cup of eggnog, a turkey dinner, and a present. Their gift was also a dressing gown. Then seven rang, and when he went up, 
There was another dinner and more toys. Then fourteen rang, and when he went up, Mrs. Hewing was standing in the hall in a kind of negligee, holding a pair of riding boots in one hand and some neckties in the other. She had been crying and drinking. "'Merry Christmas, Charlie,' she said tenderly. "'I wanted to give you something, and I've been thinking about you all morning, "'and I've been all over the apartment, "'and these are the only things I could find that a man might want. "'These are the only things that Mr. Brewer left. "'I don't suppose you'd have any use for the riding boots, "'but wouldn't you like the neckties?' "'Charlie took the neckties and thanked her, "'and he hurried back to the car, "'for the elevator bell had rung three times. "'By three o'clock, Charlie had fourteen dinners "'spread on the table and the floor of the locker room, "'and the bell kept ringing.' Just as he started to eat one, he would have to go up and get another, and he was in the middle of the parson's roast beef when he had to go up and get the DePaul's dessert. He kept the door of the locker room closed, for he sensed that the quality of charity is exclusive, and that his friends would have been disappointed to find that they were not the only ones to try to lessen his loneliness. There were goose, turkey, chicken, pheasant, grouse, and pigeon. There was trout and salmon, creamed scallops and oysters, lobster, crab meat, white bait and clams. There were plum pudding, mince pies, mousses, puddles of melted ice cream, layer cakes, torton, eclairs, and two slices of Bavarian cream. He had dressing gowns, neckties, cufflinks, socks, and handkerchiefs, and one of the tenants had asked for his neck size and then given him three green shirts. There was a glass teapot filled, the label said, with jasmine honey, four bottles of aftershave lotion, some alabaster bookends, and a dozen steak knives. The avalanche of charity he had precipitated filled the locker room and made him hesitant, now and then, as if he had touched some wellspring in the female heart that would bury him alive in food and dressing gowns. He had made almost no headway on the food, for all the servings were preternaturally large, as if loneliness had been counted on to generate in him a brutish appetite. Nor had he opened any of the presents that had been given to him for his imaginary children, but he had drunk everything they set down, and around him were the dregs of martinis, Manhattans, old fashions, champagne and raspberry shrub cocktails, eggnogs, bronxes, and sidecars. His face was blazing. He loved the world, and the world loved him. When he thought back over his life, it appeared to him in a rich and wonderful light, full of astonishing experiences and unusual friends. He thought that his job as an elevator operator, cruising up and down through hundreds of feet of perilous space, demanded the nerve and the intellect of a birdman. All the constraints of his life, the green walls of his room and the months of unemployment, dissolved. No one was ringing, but he got into the elevator and he shot it at full speed up to the penthouse and down again, up and down, to test his wonderful mastery of space. A bell rang on twelve while he was cruising, and he stopped in his flight long enough to pick up Mrs. Gadshill. As the car started to fall, he took his hands off the controls in a paroxysm of joy and shouted, Strap on your safety belt, Mrs. Gadshill! We're going to make a loop-the-loop! Mrs. Gadshill shrieked, and then for some reason she sat down on the floor of the elevator. Why was her face so pale, he wondered. Why was she sitting on the floor? She shrieked again. He grounded the car gently and cleverly, he thought, and he opened the door. I'm sorry if I scared you, Mrs. Gadshill, he said meekly. I was only fooling. She shrieked again and ran into the lobby, screaming for the superintendent. The superintendent fired Charlie and took over the elevator himself. The news that he was out of work stung Charlie for a minute. It was his first contact with human meanness that day. He sat down in the locker room and gnawed on a drumstick. His drinks were beginning to let him down, and while it had not reached him yet, he felt a miserable soberness in their offing. The excess of food and presence around him began to make him feel guilty and unworthy. He regretted bitterly the lie that he had told about his children. He was a single man with simple needs. He had abused the goodness of the people upstairs. He was unworthy. Then, up through this drunken train of thought, surged the sharp figure of his landlady and her three skinny children. He thought of them sitting in their basement room. The cheer of Christmas had passed them by. This image got him to his feet, the realization that he was in a position to give, that he could bring happiness easily to someone else sobered him. 
He took a big burlap sack, which was used for collecting waste, and began to stuff it, first with his presence and then with the presence for his imaginary children. He worked with the haste of a man whose train is approaching the station, for he could hardly wait to see those long faces light up when he came in the door. He changed his clothes, and fired by a wonderful and unfamiliar sense of power, he slung his bag over his shoulder like a regular Santa Claus. He went out the back way and took a taxi to the Lower East Side. The landlady and her children had just finished off a turkey, which had been sent to them by the local Democratic Club, and they were stuffed and uncomfortable when Charlie began pounding on the door, shouting, "'Merry Christmas!' He dragged the bag in after him, and he dumped the presents for the children onto the floor. There were dolls and musical toys, blocks, sewing kits, a costume, and a loom, and it appeared to him that, as he had hoped, his arrival in the basement dispelled its gloom. When half the presents had been opened, he gave the landlady a bathrobe and went upstairs to look over the things that he had been given for himself. Now the landlady's children had already received so many presents by the time Charlie arrived that they were confused with receiving— and it was only the landlady's intuitive grasp of the nature of charity that made her allow the children to open some of the presents while Charlie was still in the room. But as soon as he was gone, she stood between the children and the presents that were still unopened. "'Now you kids have enough already,' she said. "'You have to share. Just look at the things you got here. Why, you ain't even played with half of them. Marianne, you ain't even looked at the doll the fire department gave you. Now a nice thing to do would be to take all this stuff that's left over to those poor people on Hudson Street. Them Deckers, they ain't got nothing.' A beatific light came into her face when she realized that she could give, that she could bring cheer, that she could put a healing finger on a case needier than hers. And like Mrs. Ball and Mrs. Weston, like Charlie himself and like Mrs. Decker, Mrs. Decker was to think subsequently of the poor Shannons. First love, then charity, and then a sense of power drove her. "'Now, you kids, help me get all this stuff together. Hurry, hurry, hurry,' she said, for it was dark then, and she knew that we are bound one to another in licentious benevolence for only a single day.' and that day was nearly over. She was tired, but she couldn't rest. She couldn't rest. And that is the end of Christmas is a Sad Season for the Poor. By 1949, John Cheever was prolific. He was appearing in The New Yorker and other publications often. Earlier that same month, his story Vega appeared in Harper's, accompanied by drawings by an emerging 21-year-old artist named Andy Warhol. Cheever's slick style is notable for its suburban languor. In 1964, he went on to publish The Swimmer, arguably one of his most famous short stories. For the rest of this segment, we will be listening to Charles Dickens's What Christmas Is As We Grow Older. It's largely a story about the importance of Christmas and self-reflection during the holiday. What Christmas Is As We Grow Older by Charles Dickens Time was with most of us when Christmas Day, encircling all our limited world like a magic ring, left nothing out for us to miss or seek, bound together all our home enjoyments, affections and hopes, grouped everything and everyone around the Christmas fire, and made the little picture shining in our bright young eyes complete. Time came, perhaps, all so soon, when our thoughts overleaped that narrow boundary, when there was someone very dear, we thought then, very beautiful and absolutely perfect, wanting to the fullness of our happiness, when we were wanting to, or we thought so, which did just as well, at the Christmas hearth by which that someone sat, and when we intertwined with every wreath and garland of our life that someone's name. That was the time for the bright visionary Christmases which have long arisen from us to show faintly after summer rain in the palest edges of the rainbow. That was the time for the beatified enjoyment of the things that were to be and never were, and yet the things that were so real in our resolute hope that it would be hard to say now what realities achieved since have been stronger. What? 
Did that Christmas never really come when we and the priceless pearl who was our young choice were received after the happiest of totally impossible marriages by the two united families previously at daggers drawn on our account? When brothers and sisters-in-law, who had always been rather cool to us before our relationship was effected, perfectly doted on us, and when fathers and mothers overwhelmed us with unlimited incomes— was that Christmas dinner never really eaten after which we arose and generously and eloquently rendered honour to our late rival present in the company, then and there exchanging friendship and forgiveness, and founding an attachment not to be surpassed in Greek or Roman story which subsisted until death? Has that same rival long ceased to care for that same priceless pearl and married for money and become usurious? Above all, do we really know now that we should probably have been miserable if we had won and worn the pearl, and that we are better without her? That Christmas, when we had recently achieved so much fame, when we had been carried in triumph somewhere for doing something great and good, when we had won an honoured and ennobled name, and arrived and were received at home in a shower of tears of joy, is it possible that that Christmas has not come yet? And is our life here, at the best, so constituted that— pausing as we advance at such a noticeable milestone in the track as this great birthday we look back on the things that never were as naturally and fully as gravely as on the things that have been and are gone or have been and still are if it be so and so it seems to be must we come to the conclusion that life is little better than a dream and little worth the loves and strivings that we crowd into it no Far be such miscalled philosophy from us, dear reader, on Christmas Day. Nearer and closer to our hearts be the Christmas spirit, which is the spirit of active usefulness, perseverance, cheerful discharge of duty, kindness, and forbearance. It is, in the last virtues especially, that we are, or should be, strengthened by the unaccomplished visions of our youth. For who shall say that they are not our teachers to deal gently even with the impalpable nothings of the earth? Therefore, as we grow older, let us be more thankful that the circle of our Christmas associations and of the lessons that they bring expands. Let us welcome every one of them and summon them to take their places by the Christmas hearth. Welcome, old aspirations, glittering creatures of an ardent fancy, to your shelter underneath the holly. We know you, and have not outlived you yet. Welcome, old projects and old loves, however fleeting, to your nooks among the steadier lights that burn around us. Welcome all that was ever real to our hearts, and for the earnestness that made you real, thanks to heaven. Do we build no Christmas castles in the clouds now? Let our thoughts fluttering like butterflies among these flowers of children bear witness. Before this boy, there stretches out a future brighter than we ever looked on in our old romantic time, but bright with honour and with truth. Around this little head on which the sunny curls lie heaped, the graces sport as prettily as airily as when there was no scythe within the reach of time to shear away the curls of our first love. Upon another girl's face near it, placider, but smiling bright, a quiet and contented little face, we see home fairly written. Shining from the word as rays shine from a star, we see how, when our graves are old, other hopes than ours are young, other hearts than ours are moved. How other ways are smoothed, how other happiness blooms, ripens, and decays. No, not decays, for other homes and other bands of children, not yet in being, nor for ages yet to be, arise and bloom and ripen to the end of all. Welcome everything, 
Welcome alike what has been, and what never was, and what we hope may be, to your shelter underneath the holly, to your places round the Christmas fire, where what is sits open-hearted. In yonder shadow do we see obtruding furtively upon the plays an enemy's face? By Christmas day we do forgive him. If the injury he has done us may admit of such companionship, let him come here and take his place. If otherwise, unhappily, let him go hence assured that we will never injure nor accuse him. On this day we shut out nothing. Pause, says a low voice. Nothing. Think. On Christmas Day we will shut out from our fireside nothing. Not the shadow of a vast city where the withered leaves are lying deep, the voice replies. Not the shadow that darkens the whole globe. Not the shadow of the city of the dead. Not even that. Of all days in the year, we will turn our faces towards that city upon Christmas Day, and from its silent hosts bring those we loved among us, city of the dead, in the blessed name wherein we are gathered together at this time, and in the presence that is here among us according to the promise, we will receive and not dismiss thy people who are dear to us. Yes, we can look upon these children angels that are light so solemnly, so beautifully among the living children by the fire, and can bear to think how they departed from us. Entertaining angels unawares, as the patriarchs did, the playful children are unconscious of their guests, but we can see them, can see a radiant arm around one favorite neck, as if there were a tempting of that child away. Among the celestial figures there is one, a poor misshapen boy on earth, of a glorious beauty now, of whom his dying mother said it grieved her much to leave him here, alone, for so many years, as it was likely would elapse before he came to her, being such a little child." but he went quickly, and was laid upon her breast, and in her hand she leads him. There was a gallant boy who fell far away upon a burning sand beneath a burning sun, and said, Tell them at home, with my last love, how much I could have wished to kiss them once, but that I died contented and had done my duty. Or there was another over whom they read the words, Therefore we commit his body to the deep, and so consigned him to the lonely ocean and sailed on. Or there was another who lay down to his rest in the dark shadow of great forests, and on earth awoke no more. Oh, shall they not from sand and sea and forest be brought home at such a time? There was a dear girl, almost a woman, never to be one, who made a morning Christmas in a house of joy, and went her trackless way to the silent city. Do we recollect her, worn out, faintly whispering what could not be heard, and falling into that last sleep for weariness? Oh, look upon her now! Oh, look upon her beauty, her serenity, her changeless youth, her happiness! The daughter of Jairus was recalled to life, to die, but she, more blessed, has heard the same voice saying unto her, Arise forever! We had a friend, who was our friend from early days, with whom we often pictured the changes that were to come upon our lives, and merrily imagined how we would speak, and walk, and think, and talk, when we came to be old. His destined habitation in the city of the dead received him in his prime. Shall he be shut out from our Christmas remembrance? Would his love have so excluded us? Lost friend, lost child, lost parent, sister, brother, husband, wife, we will not so discard you. You shall hold your cherished places in our Christmas hearts and by our Christmas fires, and in the season of immortal hope and on the birthday of immortal mercy we will shut out nothing. The winter sun goes down over town and village. 
On the sea it makes a rosy path, as if this sacred tread were fresh upon the water. A few more moments, and it sinks, and night comes on, and lights begin to sparkle in the prospect. On the hillside beyond the shapelessly diffused town, and in the quiet keeping of the trees that gird the village steeple, remembrances are cut in stone, planted in common flowers, growing in grass, and twined with lowly brambles around many a mound of earth. In town and village there are doors and windows closed against the weather, there are flaming logs leaped high, there are joyful faces, there is healthy music of voices. Be all ungentleness and harm excluded from the temples of the household gods, but be those remembrances admitted with tender encouragement. They are of the time, and all its comforting and peaceful reassurances, and of the history that reunited even upon earth the living and the dead, and of the broad beneficence and goodness that too many men have tried to tear to narrow shreds. The End of What Christmas Is As We Grow Older by Charles Dickens So often when we think about Charles Dickens and his works, we think about A Christmas Carol and the character Ebenezer Scrooge. But What Christmas Is As We Grow Older isn't a fictional piece. It's a short essay that Dickens wrote after the deaths of his father and daughter. He's weaved into it his personal vignette of universal memories that we can all share and the exactness of expecting a sweet sentiment, a delightful day, a happy holiday that we think should be filled with love, laughter, gifts, feasts, and heartfelt fondness. Sometimes it's not. One thing I love about this story is how Dickens writes about how the season feels and looks through the eyes of a child and how these same feelings change and fester into something else besides glee and goodwill. Children grow up. The lucky ones grow up. Also, Dickens advises us that because we're adults and not children, perhaps we should complain a little less, accept our past, and understand others and ourselves. And we should also reconcile. Sometimes the most important person you need to reconcile with is yourself. From the K2 Radio News team, Merry Christmas. Reporting from Casper, this is Colby Fedor. This has been Report to Wyoming, presented in the public interest by Town Square Media.